Listen now to the Word of God. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lays hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon, the name, uh, uh, called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So reads the Word of God. One of the worst things that can happen to a Christian, and it has happened all too often, is for him or her to lose confidence in the gospel. To lose confidence in the power of God to change lives. When that happens, when we lose our confidence in the power of God, the power of the gospel, we, we lose a big part of our motivation in prayer. The problems we see in people, the problems we see in this world just start to look bigger than God. Look to be more than He can handle. And then it's not very long before small things begin to look the same. Small things begin to discourage us. God Himself then starts to seem distant and even disinterested in our day-to-day struggles. And any struggle we have with sin, any struggle at all, starts to get the better of us, starts to overcome us, starts to ensnare us yet again. And it all began losing confidence in the power of God, the power of the gospel, to change lives. Today's passage is an antidote to that struggle. This text reminds us of the power of God. It reminds us that our God can do anything. It reminds us that our God sits in the heavens and does whatever He pleases. But you've already heard that as we read this text, haven't you? You're already prepared for that because you know what happened in Acts chapter 9. It's no surprise then what I'm saying about our God and about His power. But somehow, even so, we can lose confidence in it. The things I just listed can become true of us. So since we read about it here, And since we're not very inclined to connect what we read in Scripture with our own lives personally, for some reason, that's just not a very natural transition for us to make. Despite what we read here, in other words, we still tend to struggle with the very things that Scripture addresses. 
because that is the description of our frail beings, let's just walk through this story together and be reminded of what God did here and then see if it might not give us a word of encouragement that would be very warmly and gratefully received, I believe, by all of us this morning, even those perhaps among us who've not trusted Christ as Savior in their lives yet. Let's just walk through the story briefly. One so central to the message of Acts that it's actually told three times in these 28 chapters. It's told here in chapter 9, it's told again in chapter 22, and again in chapter 26. So we have points of reference to understand different aspects of this story as it's retold in these different places. Walk through this story and remember what God did here. Then let's see if it might encourage all of us pretty much right where we live. Right where we need to be reminded and reassured of who God is and of what He can do. It sits, this story does, pretty prominently in the midst of a section of Acts that's not only seeing the spread of the Word of God from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria toward the very end of the earth, the way that we were told that it would spread back in chapter 1, verse 8. But it also seems to be sitting in a section that is just saturated with manifestations of the power of God that's enabling that very spread. We've just seen Him not only save an Ethiopian by dramatic, miraculous means, sending Philip to him to explain the Scriptures to him as he read from the prophet Isaiah, but this was a eunuch who could not even enter the temple because of his status in his home country, his condition, and yet he becomes the temple as the Spirit of God takes up residence within him. It's an amazing story. But then God carried away to another place the messenger, Philip, who had brought him the gospel. Dramatically and miraculously moving him from one location to another. This God can do whatever he pleases. By the way, parenthetically, those who want to put forward the idea that there are those in, in unreached and unreachable places that argue against the fact that salvation is in the name of Christ alone because so many would never have the opportunity to hear the gospel and hear the name of Christ and how could God be just and condemn them to hell when they never had an opportunity to hear? Just read the story of Philip and the eunuch again and see what God did with Philip. If God purposes to carry the gospel to a particular place in a particular time, a particular people, He can lift up any one of us that He wants and place us there. That's the God whom we serve. That's a dodge. Don't be thrown off the scent by that and let it shake your confidence in the true and living God. It's one of those places where we read in Scripture something and we, we don't think for some reason that the God whom we serve is the same God we read about here. That said, he carried away Philip to another place. Now, we're reading about what he did in the life of Saul here in Acts 9. In just the next few verses, we will read more about the power of God being put on display, healing the lame, raising the dead, and doing even more. 
This text is sitting in a passage where not only are we rejoicing in the spread of the gospel according to the programmatic plan of God, but we are seeing it done in manifestation of the power of God. No mystery that it's not just the gospel as a set of propositions about who Jesus is and what He did that's changing lives. It's the power of God operating through the gospel that is changing lives. And we're seeing that power of God manifest in amazing ways in this section of the book of Acts. So, let's look at this familiar account then of Saul's conversion and see if it doesn't encourage us in some unanticipated ways and maybe even in some ways that, that we really, really need this morning. We'll take it in three parts and you can see those listed there in your bulletin this morning. Very profound outline today. Uh, Saul meets Jesus, verses 1 through 9. Saul meets Ananias, verses 10 through 25. Saul meets the apostles, verses 26 through 31. Don't you love those outlines that just tell you exactly where the message is going? Okay. But those are the three sections through which we are going to follow this story this morning. Saul meets Jesus, first of all, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Luke gives a little snippet of an introduction to Saul back in chapter 7, again in chapter 8 in close succession. little introduction that suggested that he'd be a central figure in this story, as surely he is. He was present and approving at the stoning of Stephen, chapter 7, verse 58. And as was pointed out by Steve Leston as he preached through that text, the insinuation in the passage seems to be that he debated Stephen and lost, really. And you wonder how much of what Paul is doing in Damascus that we read about in this text is rooted in what he heard and uh, encountered in his discussion with Stephen on the day that Stephen died. But that's one place where we see him. That stoning of Stephen then triggered the persecution we read in the first few verses of chapter 8, the persecution that was now scattering the church through the region and beginning to take the gospel message into the places where Jesus said it would go. Now, that's going to be an experience of the church throughout the history of the church. We see that on the pages of Scripture. The church will suffer, and because of the suffering, will scatter. But just in case we begin to think that the only reason the church is scattering is because they're being persecuted and really God can enable the church to endure or overcome this persecution so they scatter and just happen to take the message with them as they go. We're encountering this repetitious presentation of the power of God working through the gospel that says that if God had wanted to put a stop to that persecution right there and then, He could do so. And as a matter of fact, for a short season, he did. Remember what we read in the final verse of our reading this morning? A season of peace came upon the church because its antagonist had been converted. God could have done that at any point. His church will be persecuted because they follow a Savior who was persecuted. The world will reject the church. They reject the followers of Jesus just like they rejected Jesus himself. But that doesn't render God powerless to overcome it. The gospel is actually the answer and the remedy to that. We see all of that wrapped together in this story this morning. 
So as Acts chapter 9 opens, that persecution is continuing. Saul was terrorizing Christians. Like a fire-breathing dragon spewing out vicious threats and menacing schemes, even murder. We read there in verse 1. He was a terrorist. Motivated by religious ideas, he was willing to take the lives of those who disbelieved or proclaimed a different message. We still remember almost 21 years, almost 20 years later now, the overwhelming mix of, of outrage and fear that we felt as the reports were coming in on 9-11. Some of you were too young to remember that. Some of us remember that day vividly, clearly. How far was this going to go? Where would it end? And how would it end? Like many religious terrorists today, Saul here sought and received religious approval to go to another city in another region and round up anyone who wasn't following after the way. He moved on from, to Damascus from Jerusalem. He moved on then, therefore, to Syria from Judea. And he had the permission of the high priest to do so. And he was going to track down those who followed after the way. Here's where we read that description of Christianity that was probably rooted in the teaching of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It wasn't enough, though, for Paul to terrorize these people who were following after the way. It wasn't enough for him to terrorize them at home. He needed to take his act on the road. The way was a blasphemous offense to his understanding of Judaism and it had to be stopped and Paul was zealous in the pursuit of that. So the letters that he sought gave him written authority to chase down dispersed Christians and when he arrested them and shackled them and extradited them back to Jerusalem, he didn't care if they were men or women. The Apostle Paul was rootless when he was still Saul of Tarsus, when he was defending Judaism with zeal. So Saul was headed to Damascus then with permission in hand to do whatever seemed right to him or necessary to block the way. But then something happened. He and his group were interrupted along their way by an impedance. Somebody had blocked his way. They were interrupted by what the text calls, verse 3, a light from heaven. It's compared to the noonday sun in a couple of the later tellings of this story. A light from heaven. A light so intense that it blinded Saul, but it blinded only Saul. He fell to the ground 
verse 4. And there he was immediately questioned by a voice that evidently all could hear, but only he could understand. Now, you don't get that from verse 7 here. It sounds like maybe all of them were listening to the voice, but when this story is retold over in chapter 22, you read there that they heard the sound but couldn't understand what was being said. So he was blinded by an intense but pretty selective light, and he was spoken to by an audible but pretty selective voice such that he had a personal encounter with whoever was that light and whoever was that voice. But the address itself, that would have been just indescribably startling enough, but what the voice said had to baffle him pretty much as well. It was so direct what he heard from this voice. It was so personal what he heard from this voice. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As we read this later, Saul, why, why are you kicking against the goats? Saul was being pursued. Maybe something of the intensity of Saul's hatred for the way. It's the fact that he was being drawn toward it. What, what might the Lord have been doing while he was interacting with Stephen, for instance? Where not everybody who was zealous about Judaism was doing this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You've got to pause there and note that double mention of his name. That's a sign of intimacy in the Hebrew culture, the double mention of the name. When Jesus was looking at the city of his eventual death and was grieving over their sin, he said in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood. And you would not. There's another place where we read of that intense and personal appeal as well. It's actually on Judgment Day when people are convinced that God must have missed all their good deeds because He's rejecting them. They can't believe it. And they cry out that cry of intimacy, Lord, Lord, didn't we... Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. And what a warning this is not to presume a level of intimacy with God that isn't there. Intimacy with God comes, as we will see, by repentance and faith, trust in Christ. These folks hadn't done that. Just sort of swept up with the religious activity of the day. We talked about that verse as we looked at Simon Magus, perhaps an example of someone who would call out in that way. 
So that's the first thing we want to notice about this encounter, that double mention of his name that that suggests intimacy. We also want to note the personal nature of the message itself. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying. Why are you persecuting me? Not my church. Jesus isn't holding his church at arm's length. And friends, for the very struggle we're addressing today, the one where perhaps our confidence is broken down a little bit in the power and presence of God in the gospel, this is, a, this is an important thing to hear from Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? We are the church. We are the ones redeemed by the blood of Christ, reconciled to God for all eternity, reconciled to one another, such that the joy of our week is to gather together in corporate worship with the body and experience that fellowship, that renewed relationship with God, an identification again that we are His new covenant community. It's a joyful thing. And Jesus here is giving us His own perspective on how that works. He is here among us so that persecution of His church is persecution of Him personally. That's our Savior's identification with us. That's something that confounded Saul of Tarsus as he heard it on the road. Why are you persecuting me? He had the same question we would have if we didn't understand the things I just explained. He said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Verse 5. The answer had to rock his world when he heard, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. All in one moment there, blinded by the light, overwhelmed by the experience, hearing the voice, responding, interacting with a voice that was coming from a place he couldn't discern. And he immediately hears in the midst of that that it's Jesus that's addressing him, meaning that Jesus is alive, meaning that the resurrection was real. It just happened a short time ago. Weeks. Now he's encountering this Jesus. Was he blind yet, or did he see first? When Stephen was being taken into the presence of God, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, receiving him into heaven. Did Saul see Jesus this day? He suggests that by saying in Galatians that he's seen the Lord. And he heard that persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. And he heard that Jesus is alive and well and is the head over his church from his throne at the right hand of the Father. The dialogue continued, verse 6, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. No question who's in charge here, is there? Saul went out of Jerusalem pretty boldly. Now he's being told what to do. Blinded by the light, Saul was then led by the hand the rest of the way to Damascus. Verse 8, 
quite a change from the fury with which he left Jerusalem. And evidently, there he spent some time really pondering his life and his circumstances. Verse 9 says that he neither ate nor drank for three days. And down in verse 11, we see that he was also praying. Not a bad response when you've been interrupted along your way by the risen Lord himself. Saul had to take some time to stop and think and pray. But the story moves on. Saul meets Ananias. An otherwise unknown man by this name, Ananias, was God's appointed helper for Saul. God told him in a vision to go to Judas's house over on Straight Street and restore Saul's sight. Evidently, Straight Street is still there in Damascus to this day, one of the oldest streets in history that uh, in the world anywhere. We know from chapter 22 that Ananias was a devout man according to the law well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there in Damascus. But he was initially reluctant to help Saul, verses 13 and 14 there. And who could blame him? How much compassion do we have for terrorists? How much sympathy have surviving Jews had for German prisoner of war camp guards back in World War II? It's a good point of reference. Ananias was skeptical. He expressed his concern to God, but God reassured Ananias saying, this is my appointed man. Verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And we see all of that as Saul becomes the Apostle Paul and carries the gospel message. Verse 16 adds though, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When we read in the latter chapters of 2 Corinthians the list of things that Paul has endured. Is it possible that Jesus revealed to Paul in detail the things that he would face? Or just say perhaps that his suffering was going to match that that he had doled out as he carries the gospel into new areas. In any case, Paul was shown what he must suffer for the sake of my name when Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, when Paul says, I, I, I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live, I, I want to identify with Christ. When he says, every advantage I have I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, it's all from the place of actually having endured a suffering of the sort that he doled out. And with every experience, his trust and faith and confidence in the power of God is deepened and he is strengthened in his affirmation and his calling. This statement was more than enough for Ananias as well as he heard it from Jesus. And so Ananias then went directly over to Judas' house, verse 17, laid his hands on Saul even called him brother there in verse 17. What would that take? Then he was used by God to enable Saul to regain his sight. 
and to be filled with the Spirit. That's interesting since Ananias was not one of the apostles. It's an interesting study. Why Ananias is the one who, through whom Saul receives the Spirit. Luke records that something like scales then fell from Saul's eyes, verse 18, and he could see. And then he got up. I love the order. He was baptized, and then he had something to eat to regain his strength, verse 19. But we need to note what happened in his life. Having planned to persecute Christians in the synagogues of Damascus, verse 2, Saul, when he actually got to Damascus, ended up preaching Jesus there. Verses 20 to 22. My friends, there's a little taste of the life-changing power of God. You couldn't get a more dramatic reversal than that. Leaving Jerusalem with written permission to arrest and bind and return any who believed in the way, men and women alike. And when he actually arrives there, he's preaching Jesus to those who need to hear. There's the power of God in the gospel. It turned Saul's life on a dime right there on the road to Damascus. People were initially amazed by the change, verse 21. But after a while, he says, many days. By the way, you could read the latter part of Galatians chapter 1 to hear Paul's own description of sort of what was going on during this time. But we can reason from Galatians 1.18 that these many days that he's talking about here was probably the three-year period that he mentions there. So he's probably in Damascus for about three years. So this wasn't an immediate reversal of people being amazed and then being just um, incensed by Paul's persistence now in the proclamation of the gospel. After a while, after many days, after perhaps three years, they were enraged by him and wanted to kill him. We read in verse 23 and again in verse 24. So with help, Saul escaped through the city wall at night and returned to Jerusalem. And there he meets the apostles. Once he was back there, he wasn't immediately accepted. The apostles weren't quick to receive him, even after all this time. But faithful Barnabas, encourager Barnabas, bridged the gap, verse 27, and soon Saul was going in and out among them, verse 28, and doing the same things that he had done in Damascus, namely preaching Jesus. And it brought the same result. They wanted to kill him, verse 29. So he had to flee again. This time he headed back home to Tarsus. And we read then that he probably spent an extended time there. He was eventually called back again by Barnabas to go to the church in Antioch. But we'll get to that part of the story in due course. Here, though, in verse 31, we read the next of these summary statements that talk about what's happening in the church through all of this, the church continued to grow. And now, its primary persecutor out of the way, it also experienced a season of peace. But we need to move on this morning. Bottom line, Saul of Tarsus, that first century terrorist, was 
drafted by God and transformed into the most prominent gospel witness in the history of the church. That's not testimony to Saul's gifting or his great faith. That's testimony to the God who changes lives. To the power of the gospel through which he does it. Saul's life was changed. It was changed just like the apostles' lives had been changed. Those 120 that were behind locked doors until the Spirit descended and then they were out in the streets preaching, even enduring persecution. Saul's life was changed just like the apostles' lives were changed, just like Barnabas' life had changed, just like Stephen's life had changed, just like Philip's life has changed, just like the eunuch's life has changed. Now Saul's life has changed. And in fact, there are many, many more in the pages of Acts whose lives are similarly changed. Thousands, we're told on two occasions. Chapter 2, chapter 4. But my friends, it, it doesn't stop there. It's not contained to the book of Acts. This is written in such a way that we see it as our own story. We are continuing the story of the book of Acts as the gospel continues to spread to the nations. These are our patriarchs. These are our forebears. This is where the church began and it continues on right now here in this room this morning and every other place that preaches Jesus and the Scriptures. The changed lives were not contained only in this book. There have been many, many more over the centuries whose stories are, are almost as dramatic and equally undeniable as the ones we read right here, as the ones we've read this morning. Proving again the power of God and of His Gospel to change lives. In the 5th century, he changed the life of Augustine of Hippo from, from being an arrogant, lust-driven, sexually addicted young man into a champion of Christian doctrine and theology. In the 16th century, he changed Martin Luther from being a fearful, self-analyzing neurotic into a keen discerner and bold defender of the pure New Testament gospel. In the 18th century, he changed John Newton from being a vile, thrill-seeking, reprobate and slave trader into a compassionate and tender-hearted shepherd of God's people. He's the one who composed the poem, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound it saved a wretch like me. It doesn't stop there either. It could go on and on. But we need to come right into this room this morning. Look around. Why are each of us here today? What is there in us that seeks after God? Answer, nothing. Not a thing. God seeks after us. And our presence here is evidence of just that truth. That God has the power to change lives, to turn us into something we weren't before we met Him. 
God seeks after us. That's the only reason we're here. Maybe no one will read about your life in a biography or a history book, but but make no mistake, if you have trusted in Christ as Savior, your life has been transformed just as dramatically as Saul's life was transformed. As the Apostle Paul's life was transformed. And it's his own writings in Scripture that make this truth most clear. The power of God displayed in the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Lord Jesus Christ isn't just the focus of an annual Easter celebration. It's the means by which He's doing His rescuing work among His fallen but still image-bearing creatures, securing eternal life for them through faith in His Son, making His Son Savior and Lord and King over all who believe. What we see here in Saul's story, sitting where it does in the biblical history of the early church, is the power of God to change lives. That's what we see in Saul's story. If we've forgotten about this power of God or have begun to doubt it in our day, then we've not only forgotten about what he did in Saul's life, but we've forgotten about what he's done in each of ours. And friends, there is nothing more defeating. There's nothing more deflating. There's nothing more disheartening than to lose confidence in the only power in the universe that can change us into something we're not. That is hopelessness. So when we encounter the Word of God this morning and the story of the life of Saul, we have to be reminded again that this is how our God works. And He is still at work today doing this very thing, making these very changes. Believing, brother and sister, never doubt this power. Never doubt this power. And if you do, return to the pages of God's Word, quite notably this very book of Acts, and be refreshed and restored and renewed in your confidence of that truth. Our God changes lives. And you who have not yet trusted Christ as Savior, isn't it time? Isn't it time? Isn't it long since time that you tasted of the power of God to, to change your life and get you started along the way, going the direction you were designed to go? No matter the sort or the strength of your struggle, no matter the sort or the strength of your struggle, you have evidence from the stories of Scripture and of history how the power of God in the gospel is sufficient to save you from them all. All of them. From sexual sin or rebelliousness or false belief of who God is or how He works. He's able to save you from a critical spirit or a doubting spirit or an ambivalent spirit. 
the power of God that is displayed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can save us all. His sacrifice is sufficient for all who believe. And we can see that in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Isn't it time for you to receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your King? If you still think not, there are two quick statements I want to give you that you need to remember. Two things that you really need to understand about your sin and about God's grace. First, no sin is too small to fracture our relationship with God. No sin is too small. Anything at all that renders our lives less than perfect, perfect measured by the standard of God's own character and holiness Himself, anything that makes us less than perfect causes us to be cut off from our relationship with God. There is no person good enough to be reconciled to God on His own merit. But, second, no sin is too great to be cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. So no sin is too small to fracture our relationship with God, but no sin is too great to be cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. Anything we've done, any sin we've committed that's confessed to Him in humble repentance and faith can be cleansed and removed. That's good news, isn't it? That is good news. can be cleansed and removed by the power of God and we can be reconciled to Him for all eternity. Our lives can be changed by the same power that changed the life of Saul in this passage. I think that's an encouraging reminder this morning. Wherever you are, turn to this Jesus and receive Him in the same way that Saul received Him and experience His power in the way that you desperately need to experience it we're going to pray now and as i do those who are going to help serve communion by faith are going to gather here in the front of the room and we're actually going to begin this sunday by god's grace the greatest of the transitions that's happening on this day and there are a good number of them is that we're moving back to week by week communion Praise God from whom all blessings flow as we get to remember the body and blood of the Lord. I believe while the elements are being passed, we're going to be singing together. So as I pray, the musicians can return to the platform as well. Pray with me now if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you in the name of Jesus for reaching out to us in him and enabling our faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray that you would be active among us this morning, awakening faith according to your will, pressing on hearts, calling us to repentance and faith, and enabling our saving belief. And for believers here this morning, Father, whose struggles run deep in terms of their confidence in the power of the gospel, in the terms of their confidence in your power to meet them in their need, Lord God, May we be refreshed this morning by this story of Saul to recognize that you are our God. You sit in the heavens and you do as you please. Oh, Lord God, we surrender to you as the God who can do anything. 
And we pray that we would encounter your power in the ways most beneficial to us because they are most glorifying to you this day and in this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.